Um, this is our New Testament reading for today. It's in Philippians chapter 3, um, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. Um, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You know, last year you came here and you said thanks be to God really loud, and we have been on a roll since then. So <laughs> thank you, Presbyterians. <laughs> we have learned so much from you. Um, our gospel reading today is out of Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 28 and read through verse 36. Verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it is wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at the time what they had seen. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you, um, as we do every week, for this room and for these people. We thank you for a, um, a community where, at this time, all over, there are people who are gathered in warm and safe places to worship you, and we don't take that lightly. We are grateful for a place that's warm and safe. God, we thank you um, that you are the one who brings families together. And so we're thankful for your kingdom at work to see uh, two churches from two denominations in one room. There's something so beautiful about that, and we're so grateful. God, I ask you to send your spirit. Um, come, Holy Spirit, will you be with us in our next few minutes? Will you give us uh, wisdom and discernment as we work our way through this text? Will you... Fill us with courage to, um, to turn it inside, not just to turn it outside, but to turn it inside. 
um, to uh, expose the things in us that need to be exposed, to refine the things in us that need to be refined, to renew and restore the things in us that are long devastated. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so I'm really glad to be in this story today. Last week at Springbrook, I don't know where you guys were, but last week at Springbrook, we looked at the temptation of Jesus, uh, Jesus' 40 days fasting in the desert. And so today it feels like we're sort of in the exact opposite uh, story. Last week we looked at Jesus and, and we saw Jesus as physically weak and vulnerable. And then we watched as he overcame the evil one, uh, the whispers of the evil one against him. And then this week uh, we see a, a completely different, seemingly different version of Jesus. Jesus uh, with his power and his glory on full display in front of his closest friends. Jesus who's face is lit up like a light bulb. Uh, one translation says his face is on fire. That's what we see. Um, I think both stories truly are very wild and a little bit bananas, but they are both stories about great glory and great power, the Jesus who walks in great glory and great power. So my hope today is just to work our way through this story, and then at the end we'll talk about maybe what I think the Holy Spirit might have for us as people of God um, from this story. So uh, to set the stage a little bit, uh, we have Jesus, and he goes up on a mountain with his inner circle, his three dearest friends, Peter, James, and John. And this story comes on the heels of some pretty amazing things. Jesus has been preaching. He's been healing people left and right. Um, just a few verses before this one is the feeding of the 5,000 people from just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. And, and, and so, uh, so what happens is that happens. Then Jesus pulls away. He has some conversation with his disciples. And then um, Luke tells us that Jesus takes these three uh, men up on a mountain to pray. And so if you're looking for scriptural confirmation of getting away to a mountain with your friends, I think it's here. I think we can totally, we can totally see that. Um, uh, so what happens is they get up on this mountain to pray, and James and Peter and John do uh, what they seem to always do when Jesus pulls them away to pray. Did you notice what they do? They fall asleep. Uh, it's really kind of weird if you work your way through the Gospels. Prayer for the disciples is what Ambien is for Americans today. <laughs> it's unreal. Jesus, he pulls them aside, and they fall asleep almost every single time. And then while they're asleep, this wild thing happens, and they miss it, almost. Um, this wild thing happens. Verse 29 says, as he was praying, I love that, that, that um, even Luke wants to make sure we know that they're asleep. As just Jesus was praying, uh, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, and suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah appear, and uh, Luke tells us they were glorious to see. And this is what Peter and James and John wake up to. They wake up to glory on full display. Uh, Frederick Buechner, who's one of my favorite Presbyterians, though I think he's PCUSA, so a little different than you guys. Um, but uh, Frederick Buechner, he says this. I love it. He says, glory is what God looks like when all we have to see him with is a pair of eyes. This is what they wake up to. Three pairs of eyes open up to see a transformed Jesus glowing, standing beside two humans who were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years dead. This moment is massive for three Jewish boys. 
It's absolutely huge. I think that um, what would absolutely be happening in this minute is that these three Jewish men would have, uh, uh, in their minds, would have maybe they would instantly go to the story of Moses. When Moses went up to the mountain to fetch the commandments of God, and he walks back down the mountain with a face um, that Exodus tells us was glowing so brightly that the Israelites had to look away. And now they are on the mountain, and now Jesus is the one that's glowing. Jesus, who they'd been walking with, Jesus, who had healed Peter's mother-in-law, and person after person after person, Jesus, who had calmed the waves of the sea and the hearts of busted people all over their travels, Jesus, who had lavishly filled a boat with fish and turned water into wine for people who had already had plenty to drink, Jesus, who they had given up everything to follow, but Jesus, who they were still trying to figure out, even in this minute. Just a few verses before this, Peter um, has declared Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. And in this minute, Peter, in a new way, beholds the Messiah glowing in front of him. And it's in this beholding uh, that he finds what is most true. He's been been looking, he's been trying to figure it out, and it's in this moment that he finds this this other level of true things. There's there's a lot of scholarly debate around this passage about what the transfiguration means, uh, like what it truly meant in this moment. And some theologians believe um, that in this moment, Jesus is sort of upping his game. Like he's sort of showing up bigger than he's ever shown up, and he is showing off what's coming. That this glowing face of Jesus is showing up, uh, showing off what is coming when the kingdom of God comes in full, what the future looks like. And maybe that's what's happening. I could absolutely buy that that's what happening, is happening. But there's a, another camp of theologians that I think have an even more compelling argument about what's going on on this mountain. And their idea is that it's not just Jesus showing up to show us what's coming, but instead it is Jesus exposing what truly is. In this moment, on this mountain, Jesus is exposing what truly is. He is giving a peek behind the veil at the glory of God that has been active all around the disciples all along. A gaze, uh, he's giving them a gaze at who he had been uh, to them and with them every single step of the way. A gaze at the world through spiritual eyes, uh, which are able to behold far uh, far more glory than our physical eyes far more of the kingdom of God than our physical eyes. Jesus, in this moment on the mountain, he peels back the veil between heaven and earth, and in one of the thinnest moments ever recorded, James and Peter and John, they behold the glory of the God who has been active all around them the whole time. Jesus peels back the veil to show them the story of the kingdom of God at work all around them. N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, what the story of Jesus on the mountain demonstrates for those with eyes to see or ears to hear is that just as Jesus seems to be the place where God's world and our world meet, where God's time and our time meets, so he is also the place where God's matter, God's new creation intersects with ours. That's what I think is happening on this mountain, that it's here on the mountain that Peter and James and John uh, with new eyes see the intersection of their world and a new creation 
that has uh, been instituted by Jesus. Uh, it is, and, and Luke tells us it's glorious to see. Uh, the Celtic Christians, they call these moments thin places. Have you heard this? Thin places, moments in our life where the veil between heaven and earth is so, so thin. And Peter and James and John, they are having a very thin moment, an encounter with the beauty of God. And then they realize that Moses and Elijah are standing with them. They're spiritual heroes. I was trying to think of an equivalent of this, and I was like, us showing up, and Tim Keller and John Wimber are standing. I picked a vineyard and a Presbyterian. Tim Keller, who's still alive, but, you know, and John are standing with, I was, I was with a, a, a friend last week in Orlando, and he kept telling this story about his friend Tim. And I was like, where does Tim live? And he said, New York. And I was like, Keller? And he said, yeah. I was like, he's your friend? You know, I was like, oh. What's he like? Is he great? Is he weird? Is he funny? You know, I'm like, what is he? This is, this is for, for Peter and James and John. Elijah and Moses, they are the spiritual heroes. That's who has shown up on the scene. And I imagine in this moment that it is more than they can take. Standing in a six-person circle, a tiny group with Jesus whose face is glowing and two people who are supposed to be dead, who they have studied their entire lives. And so Peter does what Peter does best and he blurts out, right? Of course he does. It's what he always does. I love that, that Luke says, Peter, not knowing what to say. <laughs> it's the best. Uh, you know how there are times in the Bible when you clearly find yourself written in the scriptures? I joke about this all the time here. I'm not 100% sure what a life verse is, so I try to pick them from time to time, and I think I've picked this one as mine, Peter, not knowing what to say. I've done this exact thing. So many, I cannot tell you how many embarrassing stories in my life begin with Lindsay not knowing what to say. <laughs> There's probably a few already this morning. <laughs> He doesn't know what else to say, so Peter says, Master, it is wonderful to be here, which is a great start. You know, if you don't know what else to say, you might as well start with a compliment. You know, Master, it is wonderful to be here. And then he moves to step two, which is also a, a, great, a great idea. He moves on to a great idea. Peter, he says, this is wonderful. Let's build some tents. This is awesome. Let's build three shelters. The original language said, would have said three tabernacles, three places where the glory on this mountain could dwell. Peter, this is wonderful. Let's stay here forever. Which is a logical response to the thinnest moment of your entire life. It makes sense. And in Exodus 34, Moses actually has a similar moment to, the, to Peter, and he has a similar response to Peter. The, the scriptures tell us that Moses stood on a mountain uh, before God, panim to panim, face to face, as a man talks to a friend. And God, in his mercy and his friendship for Moses, he peels back the veil, and Moses encounters the beauty of God. Moses is seized by the love of God so incredibly that he responds similar to Peter. He falls to the ground, and he essentially says, if you don't follow me down this mountain, I am never leaving. That's what Peter says. If I can't have this, then I never want to leave it. Peter's response, it makes so much sense to me. It, it, it makes sense that he blurts it out. It makes sense that he doesn't want to leave the wonderful because that's how we feel, right? 
If you've ever had moments like this, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, my hunch is you have or you will. If you have moments like this on, on a mountain, thin moments in your life, if you've ever been there, if you've ever encountered the beauty and the glory of God in a way that seized you and marked you and irrevocably changed you, then you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave that. And so Peter blurts out, this is wonderful. Let's stay here. Let's build tents and let's stay. And then my favorite part of the story happens. A cloud comes over them and behind the cloud is the voice of God. That's the next thing that happened. Uh, Luke, he says, Peter, while Peter is still talking, <laughs> while Peter, of course he is. That's my second life verse. <laughs> while Peter is still talking, Still breaking down his plan of never leaving the mountain. In another translation, um, in this same translation, it says, while Peter is still talking, a cloud enveloped them. Um, a, a, a favorite theologian of mine is uh, Campbell Morgan, and he says that in this moment, when the cloud envelops Peter while he's still talking, in this moment, the voice of heaven had to interrupt the voice of earth so that the speech of the eternal could be heard. That's what's happening. The voice of heaven interrupts the voice of earth so that the speech of the eternal could be heard. God interrupts Peter's speech and he says eternal words, three sentences. Some of them aren't even full sentences for you grammar nuts. Three sentences. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Matthew and Mark, and they're telling the story, they, they, they say this sentence a little bit. They kind of get deeper and deeper. Matthew in chapter 17, uh, when he says it, he says, This is my son in whom my pleasure dwells. Listen to him. And Mark, this is my favorite one, in chapter 9, he says, This is my son marked by my love. Listen to him. The voice of God, the divine voice comes from a cloud and says the eternal words, this one is mine, listen to him. Uh, once again, I think it's interesting on a bunch of levels that we, I wish we had time to go into, but uh, that Moses and Elijah are here in this moment. Uh, both Moses and Elijah heard the divine voice. They heard the voice of God. Moses heard the voice of God in a burning bush and high on a mountain. And Elijah, on this same mountain, comes out of a cave to hear the still, small voice of God. And now it is Peter and James and John's turn to hear the voice of the divine. In Hebrew, uh, the word for God's voice is the same word um, as you would use for Moses for, in the story with Moses and Elijah. The word is bot kol. A literal translation of bot kol of divine voice is daughter of sound. What does the voice of God sound like? The, the voice of God is not like a sound, but the daughter of a sound. Sometimes uh, when the rabbis write about this word, they'll, they'll call the voice of God an echo. Not a sound, but an echo. And I was reading this week um, from a rabbi who said, echo is still not the right word. We're still not there. It's interesting. Forever people have been trying to figure out what the voice of God sounds like. You are in good company. <laughs> Here's what this rabbi says. He says, echo is still not the right word. He said, um, bot kol means the reverberation or hum caused by the motion of all things which fills the whole world and which accompanies the human voice and every other sound. 
It is the hum caused by the motion of all things uh, from the chest of the one who made all of it and lives in sovereignty over all of it. It goes even further. If you start, if you keep reading the rabbit hole of the rabbis on the voice of God, and it is a good rabbit hole that I absolutely suggest. The rabbis of the Talmud, they take it even further. And we've talked about this before at Springbrook. I, I love it. The rabbis of the Talmud, they describe the voice of God as the voice of thinnest silence. The voice of thinnest silence. Isn't that haunting and beautiful? What's happening in all of these descriptions is that um, for all of time and, and the rabbis, what they're trying to do is they're trying to describe something that lies beyond the boundaries of speech. It's the same thing that we've been trying to do. We, we've been trying to describe this still small voice of God, the voice of the divine, daughter of sound, hum caused by the motion of all things, the voice of thinnest silence. In this moment on the mountain, Peter and James and John, they encounter the voice of the divine. In this moment, the voice of thinnest silence interrupts Peter and says, this is my son, marked by my love. Listen to him. God the Father, in his own voice, calls down to earth and says, mine, listen. In this moment, and with this sound, what God is doing is he is setting Jesus apart. He sets him apart from Moses. He sets him apart from Elijah. He says, my son, Moses and Elijah, they have, they have done their job. They have voiced the law and the prophetic. But it's here in this moment that, that it's like the son of God gets the microphone. God gives voice to his son, marketing the covenant between God and man, offering Jesus the voice of the rescue. This is a moment full of glory full of glory and then they don't stay they walk back down the mountain and this is interesting to me I don't know what your experience with the scriptures is but I feel like um, when I'm in there's always some sort of surprise like this part of the, the the story that I didn't see coming and for me that was this this week like I know they walked down the, you know, there's still a lot of chapters left in Luke. We're just in chapter 9. Like, I know they walked down the mountain, but it was the surprise for me. They walk down the mountain. I think the Holy Spirit has something for us here at the very end of the story. Peter, he wants to stay on the mountain, and here's why I think that is. I think Peter wants to stay on the mountain because what he didn't realize as he was blurting out saying, let's build a tent, um, what he didn't realize is that walking down the mountain would not mean walking away from what happened. What Peter didn't realize is that as he walked down the mountain, he was walking full of what happened. That's the difference. He isn't walking away from it. He isn't walking away from the voice of thinnest silence. He is walking empowered and full of the divine voice of the glory of God. Peter wasn't walking away from the glory of God. He was walking with it, filled by it, empowered by it. And I think that that's similar for us. There's this thing that happens on the mountain in the thin places in our lives. Mountaintops in thin places, they're wonderful. I hope you have lots of them. 
They are wonderful. It's here that intimacy and friendship with God, it's here that we glimpse the glory of God. These things, um, they, they might meet us on the mountaintop, but the thing is they are always meant to move us down into the valley. Always meant to. The glory of God is meant to move. It is meant to move us, to fill us and empower us. It is meant to show us where we've been and show other people where we've been and who we've been with. Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John, they experience the thinnest place. But the point of these thin places, these experiences on the mountain, is to carry what happened there into the actual world. Not that that's not the actual world, but into the valley, into the place where we spend most of our time. Peter and James and John, they, they don't come down to the valley of the mountain all alone. Uh, they come with Jesus. He, he comes with them. Jesus, who has been marked by the love of the Father. Jesus, who brings with him a new creation. New creation doesn't just intersect on the mountain. Once they walk down, it intersects into everything. This love, this glory, this divine voice, it was meant to move. It was meant to go with us. They leave the mountain forever changed by what the divine voice has told them. And they walk down the mountain listening to it. God said, that's mine, listen. And so Peter does. And he goes down. And day after day and week after week for the rest of their lives, they take this mountain with them wherever they go. And it changed the course of the entire world. The whole church is built on Peter. It changes the entire world. And I think it might just be the same for us. I don't think we're supposed to live in a tent on the mountaintop or jump from peak to peak with very little happening in between. We were always meant to walk back down and to bring the glory of the mountain into the valley. To join the story of what God is already doing and has already been doing. On the mountain, Peter and James and John, they are in dangerous proximity to glory, right? It says they're terrified. That's dangerous proximity to glory. But that dangerous proximity to glory then puts them in dangerous proximity to a broken and busted world down in the valley. The thing that happens right after this story is Jesus gets down the mountain and it says on the next day, a father brings his son who is possessed by demons and says, can you heal him? I ask your disciples and they couldn't do it. Can you do it? That's what, that's what it happens. They're in dangerous proximity to glory, and then that glory brings them in dangerous proximity to a boy full of devils. And might it be the same for us? May it be the same for us. May our mountains and our thin places put us in dangerous proximity to glory in a way that leads us into the broken and the busted of this world. The band can come on up. Um, we do this, we have another rhythm here every week. We call it Selah. We stole that word from the Psalms. We're better to steal from. Um, Selah, there's not like a perfect description or uh, definition of it. It essentially means a holy pause or a quiet pause. So in the Psalms, um, uh, the psalmist will be writing and then you'll just see the word Selah. And basically it means stop. Don't miss what just happened. Don't miss this moment. Stop and take a breath. And so we try to do that, or we do that every week here. Um, 
And I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this idea. A few weeks ago, we had a class. Um, our, mine and Dave's buddy, uh, Father Doug Floyd, came over uh, from the Anglican Church to teach us a class on Lent. And what he said is, he said, Lent is basically the unboxing of your salvation. That for 40 days, you're unboxing the rescue of Jesus in your life. And so as I think about this story, this mountaintop experience, this thin place, I think it makes a lot of sense for us in a Lenten season uh, to unbox those places in our lives. Where are the places in our lives where we have um, been in dangerous proximity to the glory of God? Um, Sorry, I, have, I meant to not say this part, but now I want to. Um, there's, <laughs> I was reading this week. Uh, you know the phrase, uh, got saved? Do you know that? You're, we're enough from the South to, you know, so-and-so got saved. Okay, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago in the South, do you know what the phrase was instead of so-and-so got saved? They would say, uh, Dave was seized by the power of a great affection, which is way better. <laughs> way better. And I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't get away from that phrase all week. Um, in these moments, there'll be verses on the screen. If they're helpful, read them. But I think it would be a good and right thing, a Lenten practice, a kingdom of God practice for us to unbox the moments of our lives where we have been seized by the power of a great affection or even seized by the power of grace. It's a good and right thing to remember these moments. And the reason is, it's a good and right thing to remind ourselves of these moments because these are the moments that we carry with us. These are the moments that call us into the valley, into the broken and busted parts of this world. We're empowered by them. The Holy Spirit empowers us on the mountain and he empowers us in the valley. That same spirit follows us. Let's pray. we thank you for your son who is marked by your love who you chose will you give us the courage to listen to him but I pray that um, you give us the discernment to work out what that means in our own lives what does it mean to listen to Jesus what does it mean to walk down the mountain I think for some of us, um, we feel like uh, we've lived our life uh, one mountaintop to the next mountaintop. We've lived our life believing that the only place that we can truly experience your empowering experience, your glory is up on high, is in the thinnest places. Will you remind us that as your people, we have been seized by the power of great affection that goes with us wherever we go that you have empowered us to do the stuff of Jesus no matter where we go. Will you give us imagination and memory to sit in those moments before we walk down steps into the world?